0: I think most of us are privy uh, to pastoral scandals of one sort or another in our time. And when I was growing up, uh, the big one of our day was the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker scandal, uh, which I'm sure many of you remember. Uh, we've seen in our own day, you know, the uh, scandals that have rocked Hillsong and maybe Har- Mars Hill uh, as well. Uh, Some of those apparently just vanish as long as uh, you preach politics without any sort of public repentance. Apparently that covers a multitude of unconfessed sins. Uh, But what makes these scandals, of course, so difficult is uh, to watch that it's not just that people fail and do horrible things, but that the ones that are doing it do it while proclaiming Christ and his name and using that platform to ultimately uh, perpetrate their various abuses. I mean, there's not much lower than that. I mean, someone claiming God's name, working in His service, and all the while using that name and that service to further their own ends. I mean, maybe you've seen the, uh, the Jesse Duplantis video that's made its way around the Internet where he, without any shame, boasts that he has the largest house in the whole state of Louisiana uh, and the largest house of any preacher in America. Um, which he paid for by cash. He wants everyone to know that in his congregation. Uh, in fact, he goes on to say that, uh, you know, sometimes when he's exiting his 40,000-square-foot home that looks very much like uh, the same sort of estate and gone with the wind, he wants you to know that as well. He says, sometimes people just throw money over the, the gate to him, uh, and someone did such a thing: 5,000 dollars and $100 bills. Uh, and then he joked about not telling his wife about it. Um, I mean, the lack of fear is frightening, but not so frightening as this is the same man, Jesse Duplantis, who said that the reason that Jesus hadn't come back yet to his congregation was that they had not tithed sufficiently. They hadn't given sufficiently to Christ and his kingdom. And the same man who preaches a sermon saying, it's your lack of giving that's keeping Christ from returning is the same one then boasting of the extravagance and the size of his home and the opulence of his own lifestyle. Again, the lack of fear is quite frightening. Well, this morning, our text presents us with great abuses in God's house, as well uh, as God's remedy for these abuses. And that's what we really want to see this morning. I want us to see first, good-for-nothing sons. I mean, after we see the exit of Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, and their leaving of Samuel at the tabernacle, we learn that he's there ministering with Eli before the Lord. And no sooner do we hear that than we're introduced to Eli's two sons, who we've been told already in chapter one, are priests of the Most High God. Uh, they minister in the tabernacle. And as soon as we're told that Eli's sons uh, are there, we're told that Eli's sons are actually sons of Belial. That's the, the literal rendition. Your translation says they were worthless. Um, but they really were, you know, uh, in the most kind of wooden way, at least in the language of the time, they were good for nothing. You know, he says, Eli's sons were good for nothing sons. Uh, and so we have a a clue from our narrator what we're to think of them. Uh, And then we also learn that these priests do not know God. And that's a pretty frightening declaration when those who are mediating on your behalf in the tabernacle don't know the God whom they serve. Um, Clearly, as priests, they knew who the Lord was. It's not like they didn't know who Yahweh was, but it's also clear they didn't have a relationship with Yahweh. They didn't fear him or obey him. Um, And as readers, we already see that this does not sound very promising, Um, but we can hardly imagine just how bad it is until all the details are given to us. Uh, We are told that there is a custom among the priests, meaning this is their standard practice. This is their daily liturgy. This is how they serve every time they come to the tabernacle. And we get this picture uh, of them during the giving of the peace offering. Now, again, a lot of these things are lost on us if we don't know uh, quite what these offerings are like. But we learn in Leviticus chapter 7, also we see it in Deuteronomy, just what this offering is supposed to look like. We are told that uh, an Israelite is to come uh, with their animal of various sorts. They're to come to the tabernacle, present their sacrifice to the priest. And the priest, before anything else is done, will take the fat of the sacrifice and burn it before the Lord. That is his portion of the offering. Then the priest is to take his portion of the offering because that is how he made his living. They were to have no other employment and they were given no uh, uh, land uh, as a permanent deposit for their tribe. And so this is how they were fed. They were to take their portion of the offering. And then the remainder of the sacrifice was to be given to the worshiper. It was the only sacrifice in all of uh, the Mosaic covenant where the worshiper ate of the sacrifice along with God. So that burnt portion goes up and the smoke rises and we learn that, you know, God in one sense breathes it in, that he partakes of the sacrifice that way, and then you eat of the sacrifice. So in that sense, you're having this meal shared with God. And we learn that when you read in Leviticus chapter 7, the fat goes immediately to God, it gets burnt, and then the priest is to take the breast uh, of whatever the animal is And the right thigh, that's his portion. And then the remainder again is given to the people. Well, here we have the people coming with their peace offerings to the tabernacle. And the first thing we're told is it says, as they're boiling their meat. So the first things have already happened. The fat's supposedly been offered. The meat's been divvied to the priest. They're boiling their portion of the meat. And it says the servant of the priest would come by with a three-pronged fork, uh, and he would, you know, almost had a little game going, which is, you know, like a parlor trick. I'm going to stick this fork in, and whatever comes out on the end of it is ours now. Um, which, you know, they would take their little pitchfork, shove it in, which you would imagine a pretty big chunk of meat would come out, and they would take that, and that portion was then also added to the priestly portion. Well, you know, again, that's, that's pretty bad. In that, uh, on this day that is supposed to be a festal day, the only, uh, again, sacrifice where the people of Israel join in and eat it. For some people in Israel, the only time they would eat meat the whole year would be at this festival. And here comes the priest, you know, you've already given your tithe. And then, you know, he swings around with the basket and just kind of shakes it a little bit more, you know, says, uh, keep going. You know, that's not enough. And so they've given their portion, and now they're being told they're to give extra. So they're robbing from the people. And the text makes plain it was pervasive. It says they did this to every Israelite that came up. This wasn't a one-off. This wasn't a lack of discernment, a time or two. And what's worse is even the language that describes it. It says, no matter what kind of pot it was, you know, it says, you know, it's a pot, it's the vessel, it's a, uh, it's a kettle. No matter what it was, they had their hand in every pot in Israel. So what we're seeing here is this gluttonous perversion of them robbing every person in Israel of something that was rightfully theirs. if that wasn't bad enough it gets worse pretty quickly we learned that before the servants had even made their rounds with this you know meat pitchfork the same servants would come to them and demand the fatty portions of meat so before the fat was burned before it was offered to Yahweh before God had even received his portion these servants of the, of the priests would come and say we don't want our meat boiled That's not the way we prefer it, you know. We want it raw. We want to cook it the way we want to cook it. And so they would take their portions early. And it says even the people knew the law better than this and would protest and say, well, at least let the fat be burned. At least let us give our portion to God first so that he doesn't get robbed. And then you can take whatever you want. At which point we learned the servant of the priest says, uh, give it to us. Or we'll take it by force, right? We're, we're, not only are we going to take your stuff, we'll give you a beat down uh, if you don't give it up to us. Um, they made, you know, the worshiper an offer they really could not refuse. Um, and we see God's view of these things. It says uh, in pretty terse language, the sins of the young men were very great in his sight. I mean, notice they sin first against the people, these people who mediate on their behalf by robbing from them. But then they also sin directly against God by robbing his portion of the offering as well. They treat the offerings, we are told, with contempt. And literally, you kick the things of God. You, 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 know, you just treat them as if they're nothing at all. And this is before, of course, we're casually told in verse 22 that they were also sleeping with all the maidens serving at the temple or the tabernacle doors. We don't have a lot of information on what these young ladies did at this portion uh, of history, uh, but there were, as we learn, uh, virgins who served in the tabernacle precincts, and apparently uh, Hophni and Phinehas were having their way with them as well. I mean, one of the ironic portions, at least uh, in, you know, the, the use of language is that we've met a priest named Phineas before. This isn't our first Phineas uh, in the priesthood. And most likely it's his namesake from Numbers chapter 25. And we meet him uh, and his claim to fame is that he hears there's fornication in the camp of Israel and that it's been defiled and it's unholy. And so this priest goes out with a spear and he spears it through these two fornicators uh, in the act. And in so doing, he's blessed because he cares about the holiness of Israel. Well, his namesake years later is not just could care less about fornication, but is doing so right in the precincts of the holiest place in Israel. I mean, greed, gluttony, theft, violence, illicit sexual activity. And these are your priests who mediate to God on your behalf. I mean, these are dark days indeed. And we realize, I mean, something has to change. This is, seems like a continuation from the book of Judges. We, we've seen all this sort of thing before, but what is the change going to be? Well, if that is good for nothing, sons, notice we see in the midst of this text a good son. In between these reports about Hophni and Phineas and all their shenanigans in the, in the land, we see these comments about Samuel just interspersed throughout the text. It's almost like a movie. If you can imagine, you know, four scenes, we have the scenes of Hophni and Phinehas and all their evil. And then we get this little quick silhouette of Samuel doing what he's supposed to do, serving in God's house, you know, ministering before the Lord. And then we have this shot of Eli and then it'll go back and we get another shot of Samuel. Well, Every time there is a report concerning Samuel, we have good news or hope. We see this comparison being made. Notice in verse 11, Samuel ministers before the Lord. In verse 18, Samuel's ministering before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, the priestly garb. In verse 20, Hannah is blessed with five more children, which shows... God is very pleased with the gift of Samuel and his service to him, and God blesses Hannah for her giving her son up in this way. And then we read those words that you uh, probably are familiar with in 21 and 26, Samuel grew or he became great before the Lord, and in verse 26, he grew in stature and in favor before God and men. So Samuel, we at least see, I guess, uh, in the most bare bones way, he's not like them. I mean, that's what we at least want to notice literarily. The sins of the young men, we learn were very great. And in comparison, we see this young man growing great in the sight of God and of men. So these guys, they're growing. They're just growing in literal size, as we'll see. But also their sin is growing great in the sight of the Lord. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the same time, Samuel is growing great in the sight of God. But in his service to God, in acts of holiness and devotion. And so we look to Samuel and we think maybe in the midst of all this dysfunction, this faithful one will have some sort of answers for us concerning God's plan for Israel. And so when we hear this final oracle in our text, it's hard not to think It's got to be about Samuel, because everything we've seen of him, he ministers, that language minister is the priestly language. He wears an ephod, which is the priestly garb. This has to be this faithful priest we're waiting for, and at least that's at least where uh, the text is leading us. And so I want us to see, as the text rounds out, this good word. So notice, Eli has pled with his sons to not do this, but it's very clear that it's to no avail. They would not listen. And because he has spoken and they would not listen, we get this unnamed man of God who comes and speaks a word in the middle of this debacle. And that language man of God simply means he's a prophet. And this prophet is going to change the whole history of Israel with this oracle. I mean, you remember in the first couple of weeks, we see that there's this coming king. We keep hearing about this anointed one who's coming. Well, in this oracle, we see that there's a change in the priesthood that's coming. That while it may not mean much to us right away, it becomes very important. I mean, the only reason you sit here today is because of this prophecy. The only way that we can enter this morning is because of these words that are spoken here. It changes the whole history of Israel and our history as well. It's a promise, you'll notice, of a different sort of priesthood. The first thing we see is that Eli's whole house is rejected. It says, I made promises to you and I made promises to your father, but now I'm revoking those things. And so he refers all the way back to Aaron. And when Aaron was called and uh, his uh, tribe with him, during the days uh, that uh, they were being led out of Egypt from Pharaoh, And he says, I gave your father all of these blessings. And he begins to recount all the good things that God had done for the priesthood. I gave you a job with good pay. And apparently you still despise that. He says, I I gave you a portion of all the offerings of Israel. And that wasn't enough for you. You still took my portion as well as theirs. So not only does he recount God's good graces, he then recounts the removal that God is about to foist upon this household. And notice why he says it. He says, you weighed or you considered or you, you thought of your sons more than me. That word there, he says, if I could do it woodenly, you gloried or glorified your sons. You cared more about their weight than you cared about my weight, my glory, which, of course, that... Kavod, meaning it has that idea of weightiness. So you cared or you weighed your sons more than me. And notice, and you fattened yourselves in the whole deal. Which means as much as we are sympathetic because Eli rebukes his sons, Eli's weight, as we will see, his literal size, his girth is going to become his downfall. That while he may have rebuked his sons, he was clearly benefiting from what they were doing at the tabernacle. He's pictured here in this text as too old to be taking part in the daily uh, oversight and management. Remember, he's hearing reports from the people. He's not there as an eyewitness, but somehow he has gained all sorts of physical weight from the food that he's receiving. And the implication for us as the readers is he is cashing in on his son's uh, uh, ill-gotten gain from the tabernacle. You fattened yourselves, he says in verse 29, on the choicest parts. This failure to restrain in this text is considered a gross fatherly sin. Something that God does not take lightly. I mean, that really is one of the dangers of parenting, isn't it? To love your child so much... Or at least in your mind, considering it loving them so much, that you end up giving in to them or weighing them more than you weigh God Himself, worried more about their favor. In God's favor. I was having a conversation not too long ago with a, a member of the church, just kind of recounting uh, some of the various struggles of the past, those who have walked away from the faith or gone apostate. Uh, and, you know, I don't have the exact numbers, but I can tell you this that uh, uh, far more than half of those who have done so have done so in their own minds out of love for a child. The child rejects the faith. The child picks a different way of living. The child uh, decides that, you know, uh, they, they, they don't wanna, you know, walk this way with the Lord or they're gonna pick a lifestyle that's so contrary to the Lord that the parent has to choose in their own mind, well, if I'm gonna love my child and have their favor, I can't also love God and have his favor because I'd have to reject this particular sin or confront this particular evil. And so instead, uh, as the child walks away, there the parent walks after them. We may say that we would never do that. The question is, what are we unwilling to confront presently because we want our kids' favor? Uh, The idea that that's going to go away when the issues become bigger and bigger and bigger uh, is wishful thinking and notice how this prophecy or this Oracle ends that those who got fat in this kind of gain at the very end, they're going to come begging for bread at the tabernacle. This is Hannah's song coming to full fruition that those who were once rich uh, and oily, uh, they will ultimately be those who are living a pauper's life. You know, Eli's offspring are in trouble. This says no one is going to live to an old age in your home. And the sign of this is that, uh, you know, Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. And so when we see that happen and recorded in the book of Samuel, you can know this is unfolding just like the prophet said. I mean, it is bad news indeed. I mean, if the priesthood is corrupt and the sacrifices of the priesthood are treated with contempt, how can that not be a problem for the people? How can that not have a bad effect on the nation? I mean, and sure enough, it, it did. I mean, not only here, but even in previous times, just like uh, Hophni and Phinehas grew fat and kicked or contemptuously dealt with God's sacrifices, Israel is described in the exact same way that they grew fat and they kicked against God's sacrifices or his ways. See, the problem, if you will, built in to this system, the system of the tabernacle and the sacrifices, is that if it's going to work, the human mediators must be honorable. That if the people are going to be made holy, the people representing the people have to be holy. And time and time again throughout Israel's history, there's this gap between the needed holiness. And the reality of those who serve on their behalf. And while that is bad news indeed, it strangely becomes good news through this particular oracle. Because what we need is just a different kind of priest altogether. We need a different kind of way of approach altogether. We need a pure house with an enduring line And that's exactly what's promised. There's going to be a replacement that that Aaron's priesthood is going to get set to the side and some other priesthood is going to be put in its place. We don't know who it is yet. And even the language is vague and very difficult to get after. So if you'll remember at the end of this text, it says, you know, the priest will go out in and out ministering before my anointed one. It may say that, (laughs) but it can also say uh, the one ministering as a priest is also the anointed one. That this Messiah, this king we're waiting for, is either a priestly king or this is a priest who ministers before this king. And we're just left to wonder. We don't know. The language can be taken either way. We have to see how the story ends. And so we're imagining as readers, it has to be Samuel. And that uh, notion we get disabused of very quickly. By the next chapter, we're told one, Samuel is not a priest. He is a prophet. And by the time we get to the end of Samuel's life, we realize Samuel's sons don't fare much better than Eli's sons. So it can't be his household. That's going to have this perpetual lineage of holiness. We hear the language of a promised household and this line and that language will come up again with a young man named David that God promises him a house and a line. We think, well, maybe it's him. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant's returned and there he dances in a linen ephod before the presence of the Lord. We know this is a man after God's own heart and God tells him, As honorable as you are and as much as I love you, there's way too much blood on your hands for you to even build me a house, much less be the one who's a priest over that house. And so we wait and wait and wait and wait. And then we have this child finally born in the book of Luke from the house of David, born in Bethlehem. And there he is hanging out in the temple. Speaking with those there, ask questions and answers, and everyone is amazed by his wisdom. And he's there even to the dismay of his earthly parents. He so cares about the weight of his heavenly father that he's willing to be, uh, if you will, uh, under the displeasure of his earthly parents for this short time, though he will submit himself to them. But he says, it is my duty to be about my father's business. And that is indeed what I will do. And it's at the conclusion of that interaction that we read those words, those words that come to us all the way back from the book of Samuel chapter two, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor between God and man. That all of a sudden the story that began being told so long ago, there's this sentence that's thrown in. And we think, wait a minute, is this the one that we've been waiting for all this time? I mean, this Jesus So cares about his father's glory that he is willing to lose family and friend to uphold it. He cares so deeply about the holiness of God that he never once disobeys his law. Not even if it will cost him his very life. He cares so firmly about the well-being of God's sheep that instead of growing fat off of them, he empties himself as a sacrifice on their behalf. also so that we currently have a high priest who has entered into the holy place with a once for all sacrifice that as he sits there daily, cries out and intercedes on our behalf so that our place is sure. Despite our failures, despite our weakness, despite our utter lack of holiness, this change in priesthood means that we will always have an approach that we can come boldly before God's throne of grace because seated there is a holy priest who has done all that is necessary for us to enter. In fact, the only thing that can endanger us, according to the book of Hebrews, is to despise the sacrifice given. You know, I think a lot of us in here, you know, as I've pastored you for many years, some are always concerned about, you know, are they really in the faith? And are they doing enough? And are, are they really assured before God, concerned about their own holiness? What's interesting, the author of Hebrews, one of the scarier books of the New Testament, his issue isn't first and foremost, did you get holy enough? His issue is, have you trampled underfoot? the one and only sacrifice of Christ, that is what ultimately gets us entrance and keeps us in the presence of God. It is also what will ultimately generate holiness in us. But it is not holiness that gets us there. It's that sacrifice that ultimately gets us holy. And those who walk away from that sacrifice, those who say that they have no need for it, or those who deny its power and say that it is of no use for sinners. Those are the ones to whom these warnings come with great force. For to deny that sacrifice leaves yourself without any sacrifice of sin. And if you take away the place of refuge, where else can you run? I mean, this is your only hope. But according to Scripture, any who cling to it, can know that they're already accepted and acceptable. Because he's already been accepted. Because he right now sits down at the right hand of the Father. God is well pleased with him. And any who trust in him have that same declaration concerning themselves that God is pleased with you now. Now when you get it together or when you finally get past that one thing, but presently, if you have fled to the only refuge that we have. And God's ministers, those who have been left on earth here to represent him, should know that if they, and you should know as as I say this to you, that their duty, week in and week out, is to lead you there and nowhere else. To promote that and nothing else. That this is what they have been tasked with. And if their message is something else, and if it's uh, ultimately helping them prosper in ways that only this world can make you prosper, then they have left not only the safe place for themselves, but they are in danger of leading many astray with them. So may we run and hide where safety can be found, in a priest who is the sacrifice on our behalf, who has entered into that holy place and never has to leave, who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and is accepted. And if your life is hidden in him, then you are, you are accepted as well. Let us pray.